And now, Veep Thoughts by Kamala Harris. No exhaust, no diesel smell. The bus has Wi-Fi and even USB outlets next to every seat. I mean, come on, imagine. You can charge your phone on your way home from work. That's good stuff. This has been Veep Thoughts by Kamala Harris. Stu does America. Imagine a world where you can charge your phone on the way home from work. Oddly on a yellow school bus. Studiosmerch.com. Use the promo code Stu10 to save 10%. If you're watching on YouTube, like the video right now, subscribe to the channel, hit the bell for notifications, do all the things. We appreciate it. Michael Malice is here to give you the white pill. AOC goes to war against free speech yet again, but we start by doing the Buttigieg derailment. I will uh, ask you to just give me a little bit of leeway with my voice. It's uh, pretty terrible. As you may know, I had to scream at the Philadelphia Eagles, which was unsuccessful. Apparently, my screaming does not control the outcome of the game, and this is something I'm learning only right now, but we'll get into that maybe in a little bit. Uh, but first, let's talk about the, the Buttigieg situation because it is completely amazing. The health concerns are growing in East Palestine, Ohio, after the train derailment, massive clouds all over the place. People don't know if they can go home. They're told everything's going to be okay, but they have no independent testing on that mark. Um, and of course, the media went into full, full defense mode. I mean, you, you think, you know, is this battle station at full capacity? Yes, it is. When you can bust out this weapon, is Donald Trump to blame for the Ohio train derailment? I mean, how desperate do you have to be to go down the same road over and over again? Peter Buttigieg ignoring the Ohio train derailment in his transportation celebration, which, I mean, I don't know what you're celebrating when you're doing this job and you're doing it this way, but Pete didn't even mention this. In fact, he had all sorts of things on his mind. We'll get to that here in a second. And Buttigieg is battered by crisis, uh, crises after crises uh, in two years as transportation secretary. Prime example of failing up is the quote about him. And it's really been true. I mean, if you think about this, you don't really typically notice the transportation secretary, do you? But Pete Buttigieg, you do recognize. Why? Why is that? Why are we always talking about Pete Buttigieg? Well, I mean, just think about what's gone on since he got into office. In August to October 2021, he had the supply chain crisis uh, situation going on. His response was incredibly lacking, largely because he doesn't seem to be at work at all. He was on maternity leave. I just pushed so hard, he just needed to be home. I mean, look, I have no problem with uh, uh, you know, a dad being home with their kid after maternity, after a, a birth. But, I mean, yeah, you have... I just, I mean, I think we know the situation with that one. Um, and, and look, I, at that point, I even told you, I think, honestly, this probably helped our supply chain because the more he's not at the office, probably the better. I mean, look at the other stuff we've got on the list. He had the uh, vacation going on in Portugal during the rail strike negotiations. Uh, he had uh, constant uh, use of private jets and a controversy related that for personal and professional reasons. We had, of course, the Southwest disaster just a couple of, what was that, months ago? December, where, you know, that all, you know, air, we basically couldn't get any flights off the ground at all, seemingly for like a week and a half. And then, uh, of course, the Ohio train crash response, which seems to be non-existent. Now, of course, he is thinking about transportation doing this. He's not just abandoning his duties. He's got some important stuff on his mind and he wants you to know about it. Here he is uh, during that transportation celebration, outlining the real problems with our construction industry. To work with your contractors, uh, to work with your community colleges, 
on building a workforce that reflects the community. We have heard way too many stories from generations past of infrastructure where you got a neighborhood, often a neighborhood of color, that finally sees the project come to them, but everyone in the hard hats on that project looking like, uh, uh, you know, doing, doing the good paying jobs don't look like they came from anywhere near the neighborhood. Right. You can build community wealth that will help close wealth gaps in this country if we can tear down those barriers. What a weird, I have this weird obsession with people who look like you around your community. What is that? Is that, is that just fundamentally the problem that you're worried about what people look like? Oh, I just can't believe these construction workers in my area don't look like people from the community. What, what who thinks like that? I, I, I never think like that. What, these people are freaking bizarre, freaking bizarre. And it's funny because I have, and I brought this point up before, I consider Pete Buttigieg being our transportation secretary as a giant troll and not a troll. I mean, because you might think, well, yeah, it's a troll on America, like by the Biden administration is trying to troll America by putting someone who's completely unqualified for the job into this job. So we can sit here and be punished by crisis after crisis after crisis. And that there's something to that theory. But I'm not talking about that. I think it was a troll by Joe Biden on Pete Buttigieg. If you remember going back to the campaign, they trolled him with one ad where they said, hey, Mayor Pete uh, has no experience and Joe Biden's got lots of experience. And it was like a, a, you know, put A and B next to each other. And each clip of this was like, hey, you know, Joe Biden negotiated this international deal while Pete Buttigieg was working on potholes. Pete, you know, uh, Joe Biden was talking about, I don't know, something that he's BSing you about as, as an accomplishment. And then they go to Pete Buttigieg and he was like, he put in decorative lighting under a bridge. It was like all these tr- loosely transportation rate uh, relate. He paved sidewalks. They're all transportation related, but it was basically a point to say he's never done anything in his life. Right. And then they, they put him as, as in control of the Secretary of Transportation. I think they've been trolling him this whole time. And they see him as maybe a threat, not necessarily in 2024, although it may have been part of the thought at the time, but uh, someone who you know may be uh, a threat to them in 2024 or 2028 or some other period. They wanted him out of the way. They don't like him that much. They wanted him out of the way. So they put him in this job. And Pete, who's obviously not as smart as he thinks he is, took it. Because it's a terrible job for someone with higher aspirations. You know, it's like someone who's, you know, it's a a ref in the Super Bowl, for example. No one really notices you when you're doing a good job. You do the good, you do the job well as a as a transportation secretary. Nobody freaking even looks at you. They only talk about you when you blow a call, and it might arguably cost one of the two teams the game. But that's not what I think happened actually. Um, anyway, so there are uh, no upsides to this job whatsoever. No upsides. He took the job anyway. And I, I, I mean, to make this point more clearly, I have printed out the list of every transportation secretary. Before you, I give them to you. Think of the names that come to mind when you think of transportation secretary. What are they? Pete Buttigieg. Are you going past that? Maybe you have one from the Trump administration. We'll get to her in a second here. But that, that's about it, right? After that, you've gotten basically nobody. Let me give you all of them. And as is the case with so many of the horrible things in our society, this only goes back to the Lyndon B. Johnson administration because he's the guy who put this in. So let me give you this real quick. Tell me how many names that you know. You've got uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg and Elaine Chow before that. Now, there were some there's a bunch of other people that have done it in little chunks. But um, Elaine Chow, then Anthony Fox. Do you remember Anthony Fox? Does that sound familiar to you at all? 
Ray LaHood, you might remember Ray LaHood because he was the guy who was in charge during the, um, the whole uh, stimulus package. Uh, Mary E. Peters, not Mary B. Peters, not Mary T. Peters, but Mary E. Peters. Norman Y. Mineta. Uh, Rodney E. Slater. Frederico F. Pena. I mean, this is like a list of Democratic nominees we're going through right here. I mean, it's incredible. How about um, Andrew Card? Now, of course, you do remember Andy Card. Andy Card, most famous for being eventually the chief of staff for George W. Bush. And more famous than that, really, for the guy who whispered into the president's ear, hey, we're under attack. 9-11's going on. He didn't really say it that way because we didn't really call it that at the time. But he was the guy at the, at the school who whispered that into his ear. But again... Not necessarily a path to the presidency. Then you've got Samuel Skinner, James Burnley, Elizabeth Dole, you know. She wound up eventually being a senator after this, but you may know she had some other connections as as well. Uh, Andrew Lewis, Neil Goldschmidt, Brockman Adams, William T. Coleman Jr., Claude S. Brinegar. Love him. John A. Volpe and Alan S. Boyd. There you go. Back to the Johnson administration with a few uh, part-timers not mentioned. You don't know any of these people. You either know them for something completely different, not necessarily at a higher level, or you don't know them at all. So why would Pete Buttigieg think this was the right thing to do? Well, he's not all that smart, but he kind of just bought into this. And the problem here is when you hire people based on skin color, based on gender, based on genitals, based on where you want to put your genitals, Based on what woke terminology you're calling yourself, when you do that, you get terrible results. There is no quali- there's no reason Pete Buttigieg has this job. It obviously is insane. He has no qualifications for it. He, they were mocking him for doing a bad job about transportation in the campaign. And then they gave him the transportation secretary job. How does this happen? And it's happened over and over and over again. And it's a fundamental problem with the left's current ideology, which seems to change every week. I know it's hard to keep track of. But favoring immutable characteristics over merit. That's the bottom line. Merit is supposed to be the thing that you look for first. And it never is, ever. It's never the thing they look for first in this administration. They always look for other things first. And then they argue, I guess, that they're picking some somewhat based on merit, although they seem to be very bad at that. Why is Pete Buttigieg the transportation secretary? Because he's gay. That's why. That's why. That's why. Now, he also needed to run for president and get some notoriety to get that gig, I guess, because they never, obviously, ever would have given it to him just from being the mayor of South Bend, where they were themselves critical of his record on transportation In in a city. But we, saw, we see this all the time with, for example, Corinne Jean-Pierre, KJP. We've been mocking her for a while because she's absolutely terrible at her job. Now, I have another theory on how this one came down, which was basically Jen Psaki wanted to make herself look good in retrospect. That's, that's what I think happened. So she's like, you know who's really good is that uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre. You should give her the gig. She's fantastic. Definitely give her the, 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 the best, uh, the gig. I mean, over the weekend, or was it yes, late last week, over the weekend, uh, I don't remember. I've lost all track of time. I can't even speak at this point. Uh, but she was in, she had a little, uh, another one of her terrible word salad sort of 
uh, answers that didn't seem to make any sense. And everyone was talking about the, the, how she used the term Canada. <laughs> I'm talking about Canada. But I want to I give you that clip real quick so we can talk about it. Why is the American military shooting something out of the sky over Canada? Because it's part of a NORAD. There is a, the NORAD is part of like a part of a, it's a, it's a, what you call a coalition, a consortium, a consortium. A, a pact so, of nations. A pact, okay. exactly. And so that's why we were able to do that. Again, it, we didn't do it on our own. We did right. it in, in, uh, in, uh, clearly in, 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 in step with uh, right. Canada. Everyone's saying like, Canada, can you believe that? And like, Yes, it's embarrassing that she said Canada, but maybe she was going for Canadians and messed up the verbiage. But that might be the best part of the answer. I mean, listen to this. Because it's part of NORAD, there is the NORAD is part of like a part of it's a it's a what you call a coalition. And of course, that's exactly. And so that's why we were able to do that again. We didn't do it on our own. We did it in in clearly in step with Canada. I mean, Canada seems like the best part of that answer. She's obviously terrible. We document it almost daily. And why is she in that job? Well, her skin color is the right color. Her genitals are the right genitals. The genitals she likes are the right genitals to like. And therefore, we give her a job that she's obviously not qualified for. How about Kamala Harris? We know this one. He promised uh, that he would put a person of color, a woman, as his VP. That means he got rid of almost every single possible option, right? He eliminated all, for example, black men. He, he, uh, he, in fact, all men altogether. 50% of the population was eliminated. When you're going for merit, you can't eliminate 50% of the population. You're definitely not going to get the best person possible. You're going to get, theoretically, the best person within that 50%. And when you go down and you start narrowing down these groups... When you, it has to be a minority woman, what are you at? You know, 10% of the population? Now, he chose very poorly among that 10%, but it, when you're eliminating 90% of the population before you even start, of course you can't find the best person. You've made it very difficult on yourself. She's, I mean, this is a person who's second in line for the, per, one heartbeat away, boys and girls, and all she can talk about is school buses. If she was good at this job, do you think they'd have her out there talking about school buses and charging your USB ports over and over again every day? That's not the way this would be going. She'd be doing something of value. But they know she's terrible. You know she's terrible. She probably knows she's terrible. And yet here we are. Why? She has the right skin color. She has the right uh, origin. She has the right genitals. So that's Kamala for you. How about Katanji Brown-Jackson? Katanji Brown-Jackson, again, we don't know enough about how she's going to be as a Supreme Court justice. My guess is she's going to be pretty bad at it. She doesn't seem to be overly impressive so far. She's not looked good in her, in her early at-bats. Uh, there's been a lot of wild swings and misses, but hey, it's, it's early. But you know, is it possible they got lucky and select someone who's going to be good? I mean, it's certainly possible. But when they went into the game, eliminating every single, they eliminated even more people than they did with Kamala Harris. They got rid of all men and they got rid of everyone except for black women. Uh, and then, you, of course, you get rid of people who aren't qualified like children. And, you know, you're, you've eliminated 98, 99 percent of all possible candidates. And you're like, well, we'll just pick the best person out of that one percent. Well, how does that best person out of that one percent compete with the best person out of the other 90 percent, 99 percent? You don't know because you would you refuse to look.
I mean, if you went to a car dealership and said, I'm only looking at cars uh, in this lane, in the corner over here, and you close your eyes and you walked over and look at the three cars in the corner, and you're like, oh, wow, well, I'll pick that one. That one looks like the best one. And then you turn around and there's a Bugatti Veyron available for like $18,000 brand new. I should have looked over there. Now, I will say, just out of you know, uh, general fairness, uh, to give you a, a, a counterpoint, because that's the type of person and people and show that we are, I want to give you a counterpoint to my observations about Katanji Brown-Jackson. Katanji Brown-Jackson, she is for real. Never had a justice quite like her. She's a former public defender. Katanji Brown-Jackson, she is for real. Okay, just so you know. Now you know the other side of, of the story, and I think you're, you're going to be happy with that. How about uh, Rachel Levine? Yes, Rachel Levine. Now, Rachel Levine does not have any of the right characteristics. Rachel Levine is a white dude, an old, boring white dude. So he's created all of the right ones by saying he's transgender and dressing like a woman. And now, because of that, he gets a job. And is there, I mean, honestly, any doubt in your mind when whoever the top person is above Rachel Levine, when that person steps down, is there any doubt in your mind that Rachel Levine will get that gig? Any doubt? Of course that's what they're going to do. Of course they're going to do it because they decided to look at the transgender label as opposed to actual merit. How about Sam Brinton? We all remember the diversity hire Sam Brinton. Now, Sammy was head of our nuclear waste, or I think a deputy secretary of the disposal of nuclear waste disposal. Uh, he would dress in uh, the dresses and a uh, nice mustache, uh, but uh, dress in the dresses and the high heels and all the things. Obviously, there are plenty of graduates from Ivy League schools that could do this job. Certainly more respectable than Sam Brinton. We know that only because he got stuck, he got caught getting uh, stealing luggage over and over again at the airport. That's the only reason he's out of a job. Now, boring white guys do get hired by the Biden administration. It does happen. They do hold jobs within the Biden administration, but they have different standards. Like, for example, uh, Brett Blanton, Bretty. Uh, you don't know who Brett Blanton is, of course. Why would you? Well, he's been involved in a scandal. They've now terminated him. He's the architect of the Capitol over the alleged abuse of authority. So the good thing is, if you do something wrong in your job as a boring white guy, they can still fire you. That's good to hear. I'm happy about that. But maybe some of the diversity hires should get fired, too. Like Corinne Jean-Pierre obviously shouldn't have this job. Kamala Harris is terrible in every way. Uh, Rachel Levine should not have the job that Rachel Levine has. That's just the way this works. It should be, at least. So, I mean, think about this. This is so consistent with racism back in the bad old days, right? What was that? Go back to those days where, uh, you know, African-Americans couldn't get hired for a job. What was the, the standard there? I mean, the white business owner that would not hire African-Americans for a job would say, I'm picking the best white person, right? Um, I, I've eliminated everybody but white people, and then I'm going to pick from that, from that white group of people, and we'll give that to the best white candidate that applies. We'll just get, you know, blacks need not apply. Was, you know, you saw the signs back in the day. Uh, we saw that in, you know, Nazi Germany. Jews need not apply. All these things are uh, situations where you take a small group of favored individuals, and you give them different standards than everybody else. You take... You make a decision first based on skin color and second based on merit. 
Why is merit the last deciding factor after race, after sexual preference, after transgenderism, after uh, sex, after all these things? That is really, really bad. When you, when you hire based on skin color or genitals or the genitals that you want your genitals to be close to, when you do that, this is the sort of performance you get. You're not targeting merit. When you target merit first and you let the rest of the answer, questions just go open, you find the best candidates. When you deselect 90% of the population and then look for the best candidate among a very small group, you're much more likely to make a mistake. That is what is going on here. And a lot of people will call this reverse racism, but it's not. It's just racism. It's just old-timey racism. When you look at skin color as a determining factor, it's just racism. When you look at gender as a determining factor of hiring someone, it's just sexism. These are just the old-timey versions of these things with new groups on one list and new groups on the other. This is how you wind up with your low 40% approval rating. It's why everyone knows this administration has been a failure, at least it's part of it. Hiring based on skin color or making any decision based on skin color should be something we should all think is a terrible idea. Instead, seems to be the only thing society is embracing these days. Well, it's a time of year where everyone's talking about making big changes, which is well and good. Most of the time, they can be a little unrealistic. I found the smallest changes to your routine can make the biggest impact. In the same way, you don't want to have to break the bank to make a big deal purchase. Even the smallest things can be a part of a big change if it's something that you use every day, like my Raycons. Yes, Raycons. I was just on a trip, as you uh, may know, uh, to Phoenix. And, you know, a lot of travel, a lot of plane time. The Raycons come in big when you're on, when, when you're, whenever you're traveling. Really, any time is great for premium audio at the perfect price. Uh, but these are much, much less expensive than some of these other brands. Uh, in fact, usually it's like half. I mean, it's way, way less. And these everyday earbuds they have, they have, uh, they have that. They've got the, the, uh, gaming, uh, the gaming headphones. They've got uh, the speakers with you know, the battery that'll last all night. Uh, at your next uh, you know, get-together. Raycon's got you covered for everything, and Raycon started half the price of other premium audio brands. So you don't have to choose between products. You can get a pair of each, maybe get a couple of things. I mean, load up. Raycon is much less expensive than the other guys. Ready to buy something small with a big impact? Go to buyraycon.com. Today, get 15% off your Raycon order. B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N. Buyraycon.com. Get 15% off. Buyraycon.com. Stew. It's always a pleasure, and that means every single time, to have Michael Malice in the studio with us. He's a host of Your Welcome, the podcast you love, and as well as a brand new book. It's The White Pill, A Tale of Good and Evil. It's available right now wherever books are sold. Michael, congratulations. Thank you. I can't wait to dive into this thing. Because uh, you're telling the history of the Soviet Union. You were, you were born there. Um, and uh, first of all, let's start here. Explain the pills to me, because I don't. There's too many colors of pills. I okay, don't know which okay. which pills are which. Can you handle a traffic light? Yes, I can do that. So you can handle those three colors in a traffic light, Usually, right? And yeah. sometimes when the yellow is blinking, you don't lose your mind. Right. So there's just two pairs of pills. It's really okay. easy. There's the red pill and the blue pill. The mm-hmm. blue pill is the belief that what is presented as fact by the corporate press is in fact a narrative that's close to reality, mm-hmm. and the red pill is the understanding that what is presented as fact by the media is in actuality a carefully constructed narrative designed to keep some very unpleasant people in power. So that's two. That's one mm-hmm. pair. Yep. The black pill is, and there's way too much of this in conservatism for my tastes. It's a wrap. 
America and or the West <laughs> cannot be saved. Yeah. That even if we have some short-term victories, the trajectories are just way, way too negative. They have the power, they have the numbers, they have the whatever. The white pill is simply hope. It is the mm. certainty that it's impossible that this is a losing battle. And one of the theses of my, well, theses of my book is when you look at the elites, when you look at those who make up what I consider the enemy class, do you think that these are impressive people? Do you think that these are unstoppable gods? No, they are buffoons often <laughs> who have a lot of history on their side, who have a lot of power on their side, who's starting in a sense on third base, but the idea that they're definitely gonna make it home to me as a certainty is ridiculous. I love this approach because I, I think conservatism has always been really successful betting against centralized power. Right? Yes. Like that's been the whole history of the movement. And it does seem like lately there's a lot of pessimism on this front. Um, start me with the, the, the Soviet Union. It's, it, the revolution's going on. When this is going on, is, there, is it a naive hope or is it a rotten plan from the start? Well, that depends on your perspective, right? So right. like with anything, if something is new, there's always going to be people who are like, you know what? We haven't tried this before. Let's see if it works. Like here's another parallel example is school choice, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of conservatives are for school choice. Mm -hmm. There's two ways it could go. School choice is great. You're going to save some kids out of public schools. Mm -hmm. Then there's the other arguments like, wait a minute, this is just going to be a way for corporations to insert their woke ideology into private schools. <laughs> and it's just going to end up making things worse, right? Mm -hmm. Both of those kind of make sense. You could see you could see either way. Right, way, right. Yeah. So with the Russian Revolution, it was like, all right, we've never had a socialist country. We've never had a country where the government was basically planning for everything, providing for everything. And you could understand how many leftists at the time, especially these starry-eyed leftists, were like, sure. we have to give this country a shot and see what it does. But what I trace in this book and what happened in real life is in the same way we're playing poker, right? And as you go through the game, some people are like, all right, that's my limit. I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. At different points, different people, depending on my view, on their integrity, decided to be like, I can't defend this anymore. A big one, very famously, was when Hitler and Stalin made their pact, their Molotov Rittentop pact. And for many people on the left, they were like, you're shaking hands with Hitler. I, I, this is, I can no longer defend mm. this. But Emma Goldman, who's on the cover of this book, who was a violent anarchist communist, she got deported with her partner, Alexander Berkman, by Woodrow Wilson and J. Edgar Hoover, Frank, uh, uh, interestingly enough. And they went there and Berkman said, when he arrived in the Russian Revolution, I want to kiss the ground. Like this was my, the utopia I fought for all my life. A few years later, they fled the country and they warned the West. They go, this isn't a paradise for the workers at all. The workers are being oppressed far more than any of the worst capitalists. And when Emma Goldman gave a speech in London, she started by getting a standing ovation. This is the big lefty, Red Emma. And when she was done, you could hear a pin drop because the Westerners didn't want to hear it. They were so invested mm. in this idea for decades that the Soviet Union was something that had to be given a chance. They defended everything. They defended the genocides, the concentration camps, the starvation, the absolute uh, censorship, the show trials. So one of the disturbing things I learned while writing this book is, as I traced all the atrocities, all of these things had defenders in the West, and not just by the like random kooks, people like Henry Wallace, who was almost president, New York Times reporters who won Pulitzer's for their reporting, uh, and huge groups of influencers from Harvard, Yale, Columbia, New York Times, New Republic Nation, all the usual suspects, their fingerprints are all over this atrocity. Talk about some of this, because you go through a lot of these atrocities, like Holodomor, for example. Yes. And the New York Times was, was on board, basically, trying to help hide this from... 
Americans, so yes. they would not judge harshly the experiment of the, of the Soviet Union. I mean, it's indefensible. Well, not only that, when uh, um, report, when people found out what was going on there, Walter Durante, who was the New York Times man in Washington, uh, in Moscow, excuse me, he had front page articles: Russians are not starving. Uh, he said that they're just hungry, this will pass. And the reporters who uncovered this, Malcolm Muggeridge and Gareth Jones, they were mocked and derided for being just anti-communist and being prejudiced. So it wasn't just simply that they got the story wrong. They went out of their way to attack those courageous reporters who didn't take the propaganda from the Soviet Union seriously, went on their own to find out what was going on in these villages that were being intentionally starved, and they often paid the price for it. Mm. Um, talk about, you talk about Woodrow Wilson in the book oh, quite yes. a bit. Uh, he's sort of famous, extra famous around these walls with, uh, with Glenn Beck. I should hope so, yeah. yeah. I mean, he is, you know, I, I don't know, before, before Glenn really started talking about it, I don't think it was mainstream conservatism. People didn't have a lot of focus on Woodrow Wilson. How serious a, a part of the problem was he? Uh, well, I, I mean, he was the great villain, I think, in American uh, political history. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, Americans are so, especially contemporary, they think conservative and religious and Republican the same, sure. and Democrat, liberal, and, and atheist are, are the same. They put those in different camps. Woodrow Wilson was at a time when the, there was a hardcore, very, very religious, very, very left-wing strain. And he had this vision of, instead of saving the soul of a person, you could save the soul of a nation. And he thought he was sent by God to basically conquer the world in terms of American ideology. And what that meant was progressivism. Uh, so he was a very disturbing figure. Um, and just, you know, he, he campaigned in 1916 on he kept us out of war, right? He's not going to get us into the Great War. A few months later, he did get us into the Great War and fighting the draft became a felony. And people were in prison, yeah. including UGB Debs, who's the socialist candidate, went to jail for advocating not having a draft to get us into uh, World War One. Yeah, really. They went to pr a lot of people went to prison yes. for advocating what Woodrow Wilson had just advocated right. himself. Not right. That, and not it's also a brazen violation of uh, the First Amendment. Uh, and Randolph Bourne, who was a progressive who was around this time, who died because of the Spanish flu in this era, he had this great quote where he says, war is the health of the state. And I think contemporarily conservatives understand that when a nation is at war, that's what allows governments to do whatever the heck they want and with 90% of the people will stand there and cheer and this is why so many governments the American government often and the and the media class want war because now they have the cover to pull off whatever they wanted otherwise the patriot act could not have happened if no. we didn't have a 9/11 first right and i mean i think i think we saw the same thing with covid absolutely uh, we see something attempted like this i think with global warming right? oh, where they want this constant state of war yes uh, that may never go away uh, you talk about Ayn Rand as well who is a fascinating figure uh, her book uh, the virtue of selfishness is is awesome just because of the ballsiness of the title. I just love it. Um, you know, why is she important in this? And she, because I don't think you, you don't consider yourself an objectivist, do you? No. no. Why, why, why is she important in the story? Well, Ayn Rand's one of the cover girls, and she, the first chapter is from her perspective. Mm. She testified in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1947, and she was the only witness who had actually lived in the Soviet Union. It was very hard to get out of the Soviet Union at the time, and people didn't want to talk because their family would suffer repercussions if the families were still left behind there. And the congressmen were just completely incredulous about what she was saying because they had been taught that, you know, the Russians and Americans were all basically the same. You know, they have their system and we have our system. And she sat there and she just said, look, 
it's almost impossible to explain to free people what it's like to live in a totalitarian dictatorship. In a way, it's good that you can't even imagine what it's like. She's like, sure, they have friends and mothers-in-law, but try to imagine right. you're in constant terror from morning to night, and at night you're waiting for the doorbell to ring. And the rest of this book was me as an American, I don't remember the Soviet Union, I left when I was two, trying to explain to a free people, what is it like to live in one of these countries? Now, there's a lot of talk that, you know, America's doomed or Biden's putting the foul nail in the coffin. People in this country don't have any kind of understanding of how bad things can really get. And I didn't have that understanding at all until I, I did the research for this book. Jump into the end of the Soviet Union. I mean, here we, we have this massive power, all this military strength built up. It falls. It, it strikes me as one of the greatest missed opportunities uh, of our time where, you know, we really had a chance to change the world for the better if it really could have turned into the free society. I think we all dreamed it would. It didn't happen. Wh who, is the, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys in this scenario? I, I was surprised while I was writing this book how much Gorbachev was one of the good guys mm. because I knew he was basically a good guy, but there were issue after issue were different countries. Because in 1953, Hungary had a rebellion. They sent in the tanks, the Russians. In 68, Czechoslovakia had a rebellion in the Prague Spring. The Russians sent in the tanks. So when these countries were in the 80s trying to liberalize, uh, East Germany is a good example. They're calling Moscow and they're like, you got to send in the tanks. And Gorbachev is just telling them no. And he's calling the Soviet forces in East Germany saying, if things go down and things turn, sit on your hands. You're not going mm. to invoke violence. And once they didn't have that gun at the back of their heads in these different countries like Poland, Czechoslovakia and Hungary, all of a sudden there was nothing holding these people in power and they liberalized very quickly and almost overnight. So that happy ending, which is such an American idea, happened to Poland. It happened, thanks to Pope John Paul, among others. It happened in Hungary. It happened in, you know, country, in Romania, which had a very happy ending from my perspective. And the point is, for people who think that the good guys can't win, well, here's your proof to the contrary, because there are many examples where the good guys won, and they won relatively easily, because the bad guys want you to think that they're unstoppable, because if you think they're unstoppable, you don't have to bother fighting them, because they're going to win, right? Yeah. So, of course, they want to persuade you of that, but that's just another one. There are many lies. Uh, I think this is really important perspective change for, for the right in particular. Yes. So is that the most important thing we can learn? I mean, you spoke about writing this book after coming here and I know talking to Glenn and, and, and seeing, you know, conservatives don't really talk about the Cold War. Now it's talking about, oh, the Reagan years. You're just dreaming about the old right. Reagan years. It's sort of dismissed, but it is the, the most important thing probably conservatism has ever achieved. Oh, I, I completely. So this is the heritage of conservatives. Thatcher's on the cover. She's also one of the great heroes of this book. And I just think it's important for people to understand this. I don't have a good answer. This was the big foreign policy issue in our lifetimes for like 40 years. And now everyone's just completely forgotten about it. And as importantly, they've forgotten about all the sacrifices that these millions of people had to suffer through. So it's important for me to kind of uh, give their testimony, what they had to live through, but also to demonstrate that, yes, as evil and as uh, vicious and as soulless as human beings can be, that does not mean they're always going to get whatever they want. Mm. Right. We can learn a lot here. We need to make sure that we're actually embracing this stuff. The White Pill, it is the t a tale of good and evil from Michael Malice. Uh, you got you to get a copy of this. It's really important stuff. And I think certainly us on the right can learn a lot from it. But so can the left. You really should uh, understand a lot as well from this. Michael Malice, thanks so much for coming on the Always program. Always a pleasure. Diane Feinstein has announced uh, her retirement at the end of the term. This is uh, big news, uh, and she'll be really 
really surprised to hear it when her staff tells her later. So uh, that's a uh, that's big news. And someone who actually makes Feinstein seem on the ball is John Fetterman. He's back in the Senate. Yeah. Good job, John. He's been there for like a month. He's only missed uh, you know, most of the time so far. And uh, he is uh, back in the Senate after being in the hospital yet again. And I will say, you know, this country has had some great moments uh, and some really terrible ones. I mean, there's been we talked about some of them uh, earlier on the program. Um, one of the most embarrassing things that this country has done in modern history is elect John Fetterman. I mean, it's 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 so embarrassing. It's like if this happened afterward, it would be considered a tragedy. If he got the job and then all this stuff happened, we'd be like, oh, my gosh, what do we even do? This guy can't do this job. What do we do? It, it, like that's the Dianne Feinstein thing, right? She got the job when she, you know, was people didn't know about her state of mind. And everyone's kind of has been like dancing around the past couple of years. What do we do? This is really weird. She can't do this job. Fetterman, they knew it beforehand and they still elected him. Uh, just absolutely embarrassing. Um, Inflation rose 0.5% in January, more than expected, and it's up 6.4% from a year ago. Now, what we saw, of course, with the inflation story was at peak, very, very high, around 10%, and it's slowly come down a little bit, still much higher than it's been in the past several decades. Now, this is the typical Joe Biden approach. Elect me, I will give you uh, a slightly better than the worst of all time. That's that's just, we need to make a T-shirt of of the Joe Biden 2024 slightly better than the worst of all time because that's what he does. That he's trying to brag about these reductions off of his own failures. Uh, but there we go. And he uh, th- that that report, by the way, being panned not by just conservatives, by by liberals who are thinking, holy crap, we're not getting this under control. This isn't working. What we're trying to do, inflation is not coming down nearly as fast as we thought. AOC was apparently watching the Super Bowl. She was uh, criticizing the ads. This is one. Let me just give you a quick clip of one of the ads that ran uh, during the Super Bowl. Funky music. People seemingly in arguments, I guess is what you'd... Maybe I'm foolish, maybe I'm blind, thinking I can see I'm mad at you. All right, you get the point. That's not how much you watch. The bottom line, though, at the end is they do a a Jesus reveal. Okay, Jesus wants you to like each other. Now, this is a group called He Gets Us. They've been adding, running ads constantly. AOC apparently had no idea about that. Um, And honestly, like... From conservative, here's what she said, by the way, I should give you this. Uh, She says, something tell me Jesus would not spend millions of dollars on Super Bowl ads to make fascism look benign. Like, she's just living in this world where people are, I mean, there must be so many freaking voices in her head at all times that, like, she's trying to put together this conversation that no one else can hear. I don't know what she saw in that ad, again, that, that talked about fascism. And honestly, this group has been criticized by by conservative Christians in that a lot of times what the ads are based on is like, hey, Jesus did all these amazing things and Jesus was a refugee. You should treat refugees nicer. It's like that type of thing, seemingly a left wing Christian, progressive Christian sort of viewpoint. And that's still so offensive to her that she gets upset. Of course, you know, she just doesn't know what she's talking about almost all the time. It's like it must be really difficult to go through life. Like, how does she like how does a sandwich get made at AOC's apartment? I mean, maybe the help does it now, but like how how does she feed herself on a day to day basis with this understanding of the world? It really is a miracle and one we should not dismiss. This is a miracle of modern day America, that a fact that a person so stupid could get through life at a high level. I mean, she's got a big job and everything. So congratulations, AOC. You're still somehow able to get through life on a day to day basis.
Republicans have lost the popular vote in seven out of the last eight presidential elections. That has to change. Joe Biden's record is abysmal, but that shouldn't come as a surprise. The Washington establishment has failed us over and over and over again. It's time for a new generation of leadership to rediscover fiscal responsibility, secure our border, and strengthen our country, our pride, and our purpose. Some people look at America and see vulnerability. The socialist left sees an opportunity to rewrite history. China and Russia are on the march. They all think we can be bullied, kicked around. You should know this about me. I don't put up with bullies. And when you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. I'm Nikki Haley, and I'm running for president. There you go. Nikki Haley is in. She's the first non-Donald Trump into the race. At least of note, we've heard some, I don't think John Bolton has officially filed. He's been talked about a little bit. A few other candidates have been talked about, but she's the first kind of bigger name to jump in. Uh, Nikki Haley, of course, uh, governor of South Carolina, released her big uh, announcement video uh, today. Uh, and she will be, will be vying for that third person in, in this supposed race. We all know Ron DeSantis eventually is going to get in. At least it seems that way which would give you uh, kind of a 1A and 1B as they battle it back and forth. Probably there will be somebody else, though, that, that comes out as a third person in this race and, and it has a chance to make some noise. And it might be Nikki Haley. She's going to try it. And no, no big um, surprise here, because as Nikki Haley announces this early, she's trying to get out ahead of fundraising. She's trying to secure, I think, a lot of big people, uh, political forces in South Carolina. And the same day, we get the, the uh, leak of uh, a Republican Senator Tim Scott now preparing a presidential run. Of course, he's also from South Carolina, competing for those same big-time supporters in that state. So, you know, again, I think you have Tim Scott and Nikki Haley are probably two of the top, I don't know, five or six people uh, that you might mention as, uh, as, a, as someone who has a chance to make some noise in this campaign. There's a lot of people who are going to run that don't have a chance. I mean, you're going to get some you know, crazy moderates out there that don't have any connection with the base whatsoever. You're going to get a lot of different things here. But uh, Nikki Haley is in officially for the first uh, person uh, to really jump into this race. We'll kind of we'll watch this. We'll do probably more breakdowns as we get more candidates here. But we'll give it we'll give you a little, uh, uh, you know, give you these announcements as they come out and the field starts to build. I do hope that we don't get to a field like last time. I, I told you I, I found a graphic on an old computer as I was, you know, uh, you know, exchanging or drawing information over from one to the other. And it was just like see, the can't the, the all the candidates from 2016, it's like, that just is not a workable format. You, don't, you get nothing out of these people doing that stuff. So hopefully it doesn't get too, too big. Just get a few people in there, have them argue it out, let the best person win, and move on with our lives. We'll see how that goes. Well, I am back from a mostly great weekend in Phoenix, uh, looking at the Super Bowl from, a, uh, from inside the stadium and watching the Eagles unfortunately lose. It was 38-35. It's all a blur, and I don't really want to remember it. Uh, don't like games that my team loses, though I had a really uh, great weekend uh, out there. And, you know, the Eagles had a great season. It, you know, there's no shame in losing to Patrick Mahomes, but, man, it sucks. It sucks. It's painful. I hate losing. It's the worst. So hopefully the Eagles can bounce back next year and, and, and I don't know, make another run. It's gonna, it's, but you realize how difficult it is to do and what a missed opportunity is there when it's right in front of your face to win. It's just torture. I will say 
what what eases that a little bit is being able to spend a lot of great time with my son who we did a we had a weekend together he was out there with us and you know man you just realize like how freaking awesome that is to be able to do stuff like that with your kid so i'm really glad that i was able to do that and as much as it sucks having the eagles lose i doubt that's what i'm going to remember about that trip we will uh we'll see you tomorrow